Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about boundaries. And I guess I wanted to talk about boundaries because I get asked a lot about how women especially can create and maintain healthy boundaries in their relationships. And I think that a lot of people are concerned about boundaries because it's really hard to develop them, like personally, in your family when you're young, and then to develop them as you age into a career or into the workplace. You know, I guess I was thinking about little kids and how we ask them to hug people or shake their hand or how the culture encourages. I guess I was thinking about how we encourage children to give up physical boundaries when they're young and hug and touch other people like at the holidays or when they meet strangers for the first time or when they don't want to touch somebody and we make them do it. And I think that there are a lot of ways that we can do better, you know, with children starting the process of teaching them about their ability to control their body and when it comes into contact with other people. For me, I was I was thinking a lot about how we don't teach people how to have healthy boundaries and how to maintain them over the course of their lifetime. What do you think about that, Laura? Boundaries are a difficult subject because I think there's like a an extremely thin line between what is okay and what isn't okay for a lot of people, especially kids. Like I'm in some situations they might feel comfortable hugging someone in a, in, in a different situation or on a different day. Mm-hmm. They may not. I think that's a good starting point for this conversation about boundaries because I think it's important to think about how boundaries aren't always like black and white and also how much it involves communication. Yeah. And I feel like one problem is that with establishing boundaries is that they're not often well communicated. And so (laughs) boundaries get crossed all of the time and it becomes a situation where The communication has been unclear. In my case, I don't even know sometimes what my boundaries are until I get to the point where they are confronted or a boundary has been crossed. So I don't think people spend a lot of time thinking about boundaries, and I don't think they communicate what their boundaries are very well. Um, (laughs) So it's a really fraught issue in that way. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's really important that we think about how to set limits with other people and about how we talk about behavior that's acceptable and unacceptable to us. And I think that on the whole, boundaries emerge when people have a really healthy sense of self-worth and after a lot of consideration and introspection and, you know, empirical data. There's no way to understand about boundaries without having them crossed, which is, I think, you know, just as you were saying, it's what makes it really fraught. Is like, how do your boundaries change depending on the moment, your mood, the other person, whether it's personal or professional or sexual, all of those variables are not constant over time, you know? And I think that that makes it very difficult. But when we think about the conversations that are happening about social justice and, and activism and feminism, 
right now, you know, a lot of those conversations turn towards issues of self-care and healthy relationships. And I think that they have to start with boundaries, you know, social boundaries, personal boundaries, professional boundaries, and how we can imagine um, doing better and thinking about them and teaching about them. So I guess I'm curious about what you think uh, in terms of, I don't know, what are healthy boundaries, you know, for people to think, like, how do people start thinking about boundaries and what are healthy boundaries? Because I suppose I think about boundaries, you know, in a couple different vectors, like material boundaries, like what do you need to survive, right? Sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Food, shelter, clothing, whatever. Physical boundaries about privacy and space and your body and touching, Mental boundaries about thoughts and opinions and your values and, you know, your commitments to particular ideas. Emotional boundaries, which I think are probably the hardest in some ways because they're about emotional capacity and our um, ability to take on the feelings and ideas of others. And then sexual boundaries, you know, in terms of what we're willing to try or experiment or pursue in terms of desire. So for you, as you think about sort of material, physical, mental, emotional, and sexual boundaries, are there ways you think we can do better at talking about boundaries as a culture? Absolutely. I mean, I think one problem is that there are like certain boundaries that are... Learned. They're definitely learned. Yeah. So, I mean, there are like boundaries about how you should behave as a person in the world. And sometimes those can be extremely rigid, especially when it regards gender and sex. Yeah. I mean, like, the whole virginity narrative is, like, a weird boundary that's imposed on people. On women. Women, especially. Yeah. And it's really difficult to untangle what your boundaries are from those boundaries that are kind of, like, in the culture at large. I mean, I feel like we've talked on a bunch of other podcasts about how hard it is to talk about um, needs and wants and about how difficult it is in this culture, especially, to talk about desire. And I think that's a particular challenge for setting boundaries because I think that there actually is an art to setting boundaries in your personal life and in your professional life. And that for people who are not well-versed in their own emotional states, um, it's very difficult, I think, for them to set boundaries because people can't hear them setting boundaries, right? Because they, they come off as emotional or shrill or angry or upset which is really, most of that is frustration and disappointment. And so it's like, how do you teach people to manage their intense embodied emotions in ways that can help facilitate better communication about boundaries? You know, that's, that for me is essential. And I also think that there is just like this notion, you know, I think that there's a notion that operates on a bunch of different vectors about who's entitled, you know, to cross boundaries. And that's obviously augmented by whiteness or able-bodiedness or straightness or power and money and class. And so that kind of entitlement, I think, in a social hierarchy within a neoliberal capitalist society also makes boundaries really hard because then you look around, all these people are transgressing boundaries all the time with total and complete impunity, you know, which makes it difficult for one to set one's own boundaries, but also like, where do you learn about boundaries from when all of these, you know, actors who have a ton of social power are just destroying boundaries left and right? I mean, that's very discouraging, I think, and undermines the possibility of some long-term conversations about 
the utility of boundaries. And I also think like, especially in sexual or romantic, you know, I hate that word, relationships. I think we have this idea of romance that's elaborated on in film and in TV where you're supposed to find one partner and there's this myth of complementarity, right? There's an Audi and an Innie and it's going to be perfect. And, you know, she or he's going to complete you. And it's going to be this perfection of collaboration, which is just idiotic to me. And I think that that notion of completion with another and that those myths of complementarity also make it very difficult to create real boundaries. And instead, I think, create the possibility for narcissism and codependence, which is where there are no boundaries. And I think just so many relationships fall into that kind of category where one person has um, an inordinate amount of social power in the relationship and the other feels totally dependent on that person for a narrative that gets worked out in the larger cultural framework. That's difficult because I think, you know, in situations of codependence, people are are forced to abandon boundaries. Oh, yeah. In order to, like, maintain the relationship or some semblance of normality. (laughs) I think that a lot of people feel guilty and anxious about setting boundaries. I think especially if they haven't had, like, experience as a young person setting boundaries or pushing back against power structures, it's very difficult for people to set boundaries, especially with loved ones and their families. And I see this now as I'm getting older and I see people whose parents have just like, you know, completely destroyed any chance that they would have ever had an independence, you know, as their parents age, those folks um, within that, you know, that relationship of codependence really have no chance of setting boundaries because they don't even know how to differentiate themselves or individuate themselves from their parents. And so they can't even think about where their needs begin and end. That's, I mean, I think that is super pervasive and really very difficult for people who now are adults and have had no practice as little people, you know, as young people like setting boundaries or pushing back or resisting power or carving out any kind of independence. I mean, and it's a, I think we live in a culture that really punishes independence, right? That makes it unattractive and there are punitive sanctions for people who are independent or who are questioning power. You know, that, that hyper individualism makes it very difficult to think about other people's boundaries and what other people might need and to think outside of your own immediate gratification. It's very difficult to overcome the anxiety and guilt and that hyper individualism to think about what other people might need and want. It happens outside of relationships too. I feel like that kind of inability to establish boundaries happens a lot in work environments, (laughs) especially with narratives like lean in where you're being asked to work more and more. And I mean, that really infiltrates boundaries because you're made to think that like it would be inappropriate to set a boundary for working more because that would be then a barrier to your uh, success. You would feel guilty. Again, there's like a sense of guilt if you establish a boundary with like a partner or in your workplace, you're made to feel guilty for not wanting or not doing the things to like become successful, like have, have a successful marriage. Like you're not willing to do this thing for me, honey. You feel guilty for saying no. Like you might be the cause of the dissipation of your relationship. Yeah. Or you're not willing to stay an extra two hours today. You're the reason, like that's the reason you're not going to get promoted. (laughs) Well, we did an episode on gaslighting. I feel like gaslighting is the language of boundary destruction. I feel like gaslighting and all of the attenuating rhetorical strategies that go along with undermining the reality of another participant in relationship imagining 
is all about the erosion of potential boundaries that would allow people to exist as individuated people and manage their needs. The Academy's full of sociopaths and narcissists and bullies like every other workplace. I worked with a, a colleague once who demanded in a room full of people that I give them access to my Facebook page and was like, why didn't you friend me? Why wouldn't you accept my friend request on Facebook? And I'm like, we are not peers. We are not friends. You don't need to see my vacation photos. It's a boundary. I have it. It's permanent. And I think that that colleague would have tried to bully me longer if I hadn't set that boundary immediately upon encountering that kind of push into my personal life. So I feel like for me, especially in the workplace, I have pretty rigid boundaries. I mean, it's very rare that I actually make friends with people that I work with on campus. There, I can count them on one hand of people that I socialize with, like per, actually personally, mostly because I think that the lean-in culture is so strong in the academy that people will use information about you to further their personal gains because they do not have boundaries about things that they would stand up for or about professional obligations that maybe cross the line and become inappropriately personal. And I think academics in particular, because they're so nerdy and in their heads a lot, don't give a lot of thought about other people and their needs, especially when they work with them. They've worked with them for a long time. They just sort of become part of the furniture of the university, which I find mostly revolting. So I think that it's very rare in workplaces to find people who have a healthy sense of boundary, you know, who can be professional and and you would like to work with them, but also can maintain a sense of right and wrong and understand other people's needs and to perform empathy in the workplace. Because, I mean, lean in culture is about vacating empathy, especially for women who are working and people of color and queer people and disabled people. I mean, Lean in culture is very much about the erosion of empathy as a point of solidarity in the workplace to create more compassionate working conditions. I think it's definitely about eroding boundaries. What do you think about that? That's a really interesting line of thought for nar- narcissism and like a single light of focus on your own achievement, which thought processes like lean in encourage and also the work environment of the academy those types of environments encourage just like a single-mindedness and a narcissism. And it's kind of interesting how that can contribute to the erosion of boundaries or just like the complete disregard for other people's boundaries. That's really interesting to me. I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't discuss the, the crossing of boundaries that happens with situations like where narcissism plays a big role. And I feel like that's happening a lot recently. I mean, there's a lot of public discussion about Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, and Louis C.K., and the the crossing of sexual boundaries. And in all of these cases, what's striking is that none of these men seem to have understood the boundary, or they just didn't care, you know, <laughs> yeah. about it at all. A lot of the, the situations were, and Kevin Spacey, I think, um, taking advantage of young young folks is always I mean that's like a situation where you're taking advantage of someone who might not be able to even understand what their boundaries are yet in the other cases it seems like there was just a disregard for like other people's comfort I mean you know I think that that is really about entitlement culture and about the stratification of power 
into the hands of a few that creates the sense that personal gratification should be indulged at any cost. And there, and, and of course, then that there's no consequence. And I think theoretically, it's this notion that we should be individuals and think about our needs and our care and our wants, and also be able to articulate those so that we can participate in solidarity. And the thing that happens with entitlement is all about how to destroy solidarity, right? How to enact personal desire without the thinking about the comfort or outcome for other people, and then destroying their ability to articulate those as harms. I feel like entitlement itself is a harm. Like the a priori thing about entitlement is that it is the ability to do harm. That's why people want it. They don't want to, to all of this power so that they can help people, right? They want it for personal gratification. And so it seems to me that entitlement completely undermines the possibility of consent. Like in a world where people feel entitled to grab her by the pussy, there is no possibility for consent whatsoever. It's not, it's not an ideal. It's not a norm. It's not something to aspire to. It's not a communicative practice. I mean, there is no world where entitlement and consent can coexist in any kind of productive dialogue. I mean, it's interesting to me that Hollywood is going to set up some sort of I don't know, an accountability panel to investigate its own abuses, which is like hilarious to me. The abuse of power in Hollywood is so deep and so long and so pervasive and so entrenched. I mean, I just don't know how you wouldn't just point at every film set and be like, yes, 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 yes. Look at all this violence that happened on these sets, you know, and produce this art. And politics is the same way and the workplace is the same way. And, you know, I just, um, you know... I don't know that it helps to really think about Hollywood as a space for entitlement and violence when it really it's a very hyper-American phenomenon. You know, you're going to find it everywhere. You're going to find it in the Roy Moore race for Senate in Alabama, and you're going to find it in the presidency, and you're going to find it in the judiciary, and you're going to find it in the Department of Justice. You're going to find it in all these places because fundamentally – the United States rejects consent <laughs> and it rejects egalitarianism and it rejects equality as goals. We're living through a moment that is a repudiation of equality. So you're going to see tons and tons of excess. And all that is is about blurring boundaries and erasing them so that wealth can be you know, concentrated and power can be wielded efficiently by the top. So this is a moment where a conversation about boundaries is percolating. I'm really curious to see where it's going to go. What does it mean if the culture acknowledges that we don't have boundaries? I mean, because that's fundamentally a question of empire, isn't it? We don't respect sovereignty of other nations. The president just went to South Korea and lectured them about the perils of North Korea. I mean, you would talk about boundary crossing. Right Here's this white pussy grabber trying to tell the South Koreans on the peninsula what's happening in their country in literally the least articulate way possible. That's an example of the same kind of thing. It just doesn't happen to be about sex, but it's still about power and entitlement and who's driving the narrative and who's creating the kind of narrative space for heroism. I mean, all of that is the same as Harvey Weinstein. There's no difference to me except in terms of scope. Uh, otherwise, they're, they're exactly the same kind of phenomenon. I yeah, I am frustrated by the the way that we discuss consent because it seems to be discarded, <laughs> kind of as an idea. 
That's because women aren't people and queers aren't people and brown people aren't people. They are not conceived of as fundamentally equal to white men. Not under the law. Not in any of the institutions. Yeah. You can't have consent in a culture that fundamentally sees any people as fundamentally unequal or as illegal. Or I mean, those notions that some of the people are less than people make it impossible to talk about consent as a positive opportunity for communication. To me, consent is like the bare minimum and you should act like the goal shouldn't be just to um, receive consent about uh, someone's boundary. It should be like, there should be a different goal. Mutuality. (laughs) Right. It should be an enthusiastic. Yes. Not just a real, if it's a reluctant, yes. I mean, that might qualify as consent, but it shouldn't be like approval to cross a boundary. There should be enthusiastic. But it's not just consent. It's also no. You know, no is a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. Do you want this? No. Okay, that's that. Right? That's a complete sentence. And I feel like lean in culture in particular is about undermining the power of no and about teaching women ways to avoid having to say no, which I loathe because that also, I think, erodes the ability of non-hegemonic people in the workplace from their personal lives to learn how to set healthy boundaries. If they don't learn practicing saying no, how do they actually create, you know, healthy space for themselves in the world? Yes, this is important as no, but, you know, we don't talk about either in productive ways. I mean, you and I have talked about before about like what happens when you turn down a guy's drink at the bar and suddenly it escalates into a life-threatening situation, which it really just should not. And that's about men not understanding no, right? Like a no is somehow like literally the thing that's going to shatter their ego because they don't hear it very often because we don't practice it. White people don't hear no, you know, heterosexual people don't hear no. It's, I think that that's part of fragility culture, white fragility and straight fragility in America right now is the inability to understand that no is real and you can't just always have what you want. That communication is a collaborative practice where both people's desires need to be part of any kind of collaboration, interpersonally especially. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that we're... We're doing neither yes nor no. It's just the automatic function of power. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It's being exerted by the top against the bottom. And the people who have less political power aren't learning how to maneuver around it or wield it back or avoid it. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And lean in is all about blunting our ability to negotiate that ubiquitous functioning of power. You can't see it. It's happening all the time. If you just leaned into it and went along with it, if you just gave Harvey Weinstein the massage, he will stop asking you to sleep with him. Like, that's idiot. It's idiotic. You know, it's fundamentally lean and is fundamentally a discourse of misogyny, I think. I mean, of course, I've said that before. But <laughs> in this context, I think it's quite clear that mm-hmm. lean in is a discourse of misogyny. And I feel like... Most cultural boundaries are also misogynistic. And I think, you know, I had a student say, chase me down after class last week and was like, oh my gosh, I've just never seen a woman take up space like you do. And it's really refreshing and interesting. And I've just never seen it. And that happens with some regularity. And I say that not to like, you know, be self-complimentary, except to say that women have so few examples 
of other women who create healthy boundaries that when they see it, it is stark. It's, it's noticeable. It is, I think it's very empowering to see people who have healthy boundaries, you know, and it's an important thing that uh, mentors need to model. And I think it's an important thing that scholars need to model, you know, for students and bosses in the workplace and parents. I mean, people in authority really need to take the time, I think, to interrogate their relationship to power and the kinds of lessons that they are teaching about the boundaries of themselves and others, and especially about whether or not they're allowing people in the workplace or in their families to have hard conversations, you know? Like this political moment, especially that we're in right now, is one where I think you're seeing obviously a lot of political tension over social issues and over value debates. And I just think about how many people are so totally ill-equipped to have conversations about especially their intellectual boundaries with members of their family or their friend group. Like people are literally not equipped to do that work, which obviously blows my mind on the one sense because I can't relate to it. But on the other sense, it's so pervasive and it's so normalized to not have those skills and to avoid hard conversations and to avoid responsibility and accountability and to avoid pain and suffering if you're white and straight and wealthy and heterosexual, et cetera, able-bodied, you know, that, that, that um, disavowal of discomfort is part of lean in culture too. I guess I'm saying that I think that we, that this moment where all these sexual abuse stories are pouring out of Hollywood and out of American political life, it seems like there's an opportunity here really to have a large cultural conversation about who we want to be as people and how we want to treat other people. Because whether it's the Muslim ban or the the trans ban in the military or the DACA raids or the assault on women's health options or, I mean, this extremely punitive anti-health care politics, I mean, all of those things fundamentally speak to a total lack of integrity for people to define the kind of care that they need in the culture. And especially in a moment where feminists are talking so much about self-care and the importance of thinking about caring about themselves, I mean, that strikes me as begging the question about why they need care. They need to self-care because the culture gives literally zero fucks about them except insofar as that they can help be accessories to building and maintaining generational wealth and power. And so I think that this is a real opportunity to interrogate notions of consent and collaboration and solidarity and codependence and narcissism and, you know, and to try and unravel the major political structures that institutions build and and maintain that undermine our ability to create empathy and to collaborate productively with other people who might be different than us. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.